Welcome to You Wish You'd Known. Today we're diving into the claims world and we're joined by Sharif Hamza. Did I pronounce your surname correctly? You oh, I, nailed it. <laughs> I've been called worse. So Correct. So let's just go with that. Look, we're going to dive into claims best practice because you've been in and around the claims world and many avenues within that claims world. So you've been in retail, direct, group, workers comp. So we're going to focus in on the retail world and we're joined also by the very wonderful Glenn James. Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening today. Best practice when it comes to claims. Wow. Early engagement and early intervention are definitely the keys that you you probably need to, you need to drive, first of all. So I think as soon as you or your client are aware that there's an injury or a disability, um, it's making sure that we are we are made aware as early as possible. I think the other thing that is always an issue is as an advisor, and we would encourage you to do these, are your regular reviews of people and and then their income in particular because Mm. um, people tend to get to claim time and they're either underinsured or they're overinsured. So if they're underinsured, then that means, you know, their, their income is $60,000, but they're only insuring a $40,000 income, mm-hmm. poses a problem. Uh, if they're overinsured, they think they've been paying income for $60,000, but their income is effectively, they're, they're only paying premium based on a $40,000 income. So I think they're the things that I would encourage advisors to do. Um, the third thing goes back to the application process and, and speaking to the to the client about the importance of disclosure, no matter how big, how small, that making sure that they inform their client that they need to disclose everything to the insurer because what we don't want to see happen is an issue at claim time. Mm-hmm. Um, we are in the business of paying claims um, and, and that's, you know, there's many stats that say the majority of what we do is paying claims. So we pay over 90% of claims um, and, and that's across the industry. That's really good. I'm, I'll always default to practical on behalf of the advisor, what they need to know and how they can implement things. You mentioned uh, early engagement. So client breaks something or is apparently very sick. It's a 30-day waiting period. Is the advisor getting on the phone as soon as they know, even if the waiting period hasn't been served, just to give the insurer the heads up, there's a claim coming in at some point? Does that help or do we wait till the waiting period's satisfied, then contact the insurer? No, absolutely. I think get to the insurer as soon as possible. So even if the waiting period hasn't expired, approaching the insurer straight away and even getting those, even if it's completing claim forms or, you know, that, that can often take some time, right? So I think if you can notify us as quickly as possible, we can send you out the claims pack or, or do the notifications over the phone. And, and the client and, and the advisor can work around getting the medical evidence and, and, and everything uh, in that period. What's the leeway on, firstly, a client seeing a doctor with an income protection style claim? Generally, there is no leeway. You, you generally tend to need to 
go see a doctor because um, most policies will say that you know you need advice from a, a registered medical. Practitioner. Or you're under the care of a doctor. Exactly. Or yeah. you're under the care of a registered medical practitioner. So. So that can really blow out the waiting period if your client yeah. doesn't get to the doctor and and tell them Absolutely. that they're sick. Absolutely. So maybe that's sort of best practice if you're going back a few steps. I'm a new advisor. I'm building my 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 process. Have something that kind of steps a client through what they should do when they feel unwell and they actually can't go to work. And yeah, they think absolutely. It's more than a, absolutely. Yeah. I still all my clients, the minute you break your ankle, whatever, if it's a Sunday or get to the bloody doctor, like, because you need to have it logged that you're under the care of a doctor. Yeah. And look, and I would say those clients who, who have particularly broken a limb, um, you know, the sooner they can get those claims in, the better, because generally, um, there's a specified injury benefit that's paid. So particularly in the retail advice space, most policies have a, a specified injury benefit, which will which will pay out a couple of months worth of benefits anyway. So, and usually that they can be provided on, um, you know, some pretty simplistic evidence. So, mm-hmm. you know, an evidence of an X-ray or something that says, that, that confirms that there's a broken bone or there's a fracture that's taken place or something like that. You mentioned... Uh with claims as one of the third issues is the underwriting process and it is very material with claims. Talk to us about claims that happen within the first year of a policy being written. Yeah, well- like, is it things that fraud pop up or is it non-disclosure or is it there should be non-disclosure because it's so recent- because I've had experiences where claims have been very wobbly because I wrote a policy in the next month there was a claim and it looked sus for a couple of reasons that it wasn't. Yeah, look, absolutely. And particularly where they've had no cover previously. Yeah. Um, and they've come up as a new policy with, you know, and, and then as, as you're working through the claim, you, you identify things throughout the claim, whether that's medical evidence or medical history or, or even there's something um, – on a desktop search or, or something like that, or where it comes up that there are things that should have been disclosed to us at that time of application, but weren't. And had they been, had we as the insurer been made aware, we may not have entered into the contract on the same terms. Are there areas where that comes up a lot? Like, are there, you know, I think that in my mind, there's this blatant non disclosure thing, but then there's this almost this innocent non-disclosure because the general public don't really understand the intricacies of what we need to know as insurers. Does that innocent non-disclosure, does that typically come up in some common places? Like I'm thinking backs kind of stuff. Well, Danny, like that innocent non-disclosure was the exact reason. We We wrote the policy in July. In August, she busted her knee playing soccer. She forgot to say she had a knee x ray three years ago for some pain. And they paid the claim, but innocent non-disclosure. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so you're right. There is a difference between innocent non-disclosure and deliberate non-disclosure, I think is probably the way to call it. <laughs> Blatant um, fraud. What? <laughs> yeah. Um, where, you know, someone goes to a doctor and I think we said the, you know, the, the X-ray wasn't, um, you know, I, I had an X-ray on my knee or, you know, I had some blood tests done or I, um, you know, for women I had had a a mammogram done but didn't disclose anything. Um, So innocent non-disclosure is very different to deliberate and I think as an insurer we're we're very conscious of 
the differentiation there. Um, and that's why we need to consider all the evidence and what would have been what would the customer have been aware of um, in particular when, when they were completing that application. How important is it for a new advisor to get to know the insurance company claim teams that they're working with to understand claims philosophies? Because I'm sure there would be insurers that see innocent non-disclosure and just go, no, buy the book, we didn't know about it. And then others who take maybe a holistic view, build a bit of a case, yeah, we can clearly see that it was innocent, we will honour this claim. And does time with the insurance company come into play, whether it's a 10-minute old client or a 10-year client? Yeah, look, I think it's the insurer's philosophy is obviously very, very important. So you can understand what the insurer's philosophy is. I also think what you've got to be mindful of is most insurers also are um, working under the same legislation and regulations in terms of how things are interpreted and, and they understand the case law um, that, that applies to disclosure and non-disclosure as well. Um, so in most areas, there's very, very, you know, there's precedent case law in terms of what what is non-disclosure and what's not. Um, so we are seeing a lot more, um, I guess, alignment and, and there was this little thing that happened a couple of years ago called the Royal Commission. I don't know whether you heard about it. No, I haven't. No. What's no. that? Um, where they <laughs> where they talked about and made some change or made some recommendations around um, you know philosophy around you know applying certain sections of section 29 of the Insurance Contracts Act in particular. So yes get get familiar with your, with your insurer's philosophy um, but ultimately um, as insurers, we should all be acting in very similar ways. So a question from a layman's point of view, and if you're a new advisor, policies are underwritten, particularly IP contracts, uh, on income and occupation. Yes. Okay. I write my policy and we'll assume that it is a guaranteed renewable policy or within that five-year window once that gets put to bed. Now, I'm a, an accountant. Three years later, I decided I want to be a coal miner, which totally policy is underwritten. At the time of claim, the definition is, can I work, yes or no, based on what I was underwritten for. Is that correct? So, I'm a coal miner. Am I getting underwritten at the time of, can I lift coal or can I sit at a desk? Because the income side of it, would follow if you meet the definition of claim. Is that correct? Yeah. Now, I think what you've got to be careful of is, is what the occupational duties are and the definitions that are in those occupational duties. Um, so, in saying that, you need to be very conscious, like I said, of the policy, but it's generally the occupation at the time of claim that, that you'll be assessed under. So, while that's kind of, kind of a drastic change... Um, it would effectively be the coal miner, but... Is there what, a two-year window previously or is that just for income? Again, that's probably dependent on what the income is on the pre-disability side to, to justify the monthly benefit. Um, so it'll be like the, it could be the best 12 months and last 24 or last 36 months as, as an example. Although with APRA now they're talking about, you know, 12 the, best, the last 12 months. Um, and we'll get a comment from you on that too. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think it, it, it depends on your occupation at the time of claim and it depends on your income 
Um, and the window of the 12 or 36 months will be dependent on um, that's what that's what will help support the monthly benefit rather than the actual duties as is well. it a fair comment to say you know for advisors that are out there and listening if you've got a legitimate policy that was retail underwritten at the time whatever the case is at claim time if you were legitimately working and you're legitimately ill there should be a decent safety net that you'll be looked after Yes. Now, I'm going to put a proviso on this because I'm going to go back to your previous question in relation to the accountant that went to a minor. In the application form, there's usually a question around whether you intend to change your occupation. And if you tick no to that, but you change your occupation the next week. Yeah, 10 minutes later. Yeah. yeah that's an issue. <laughs> that That's an issue, right? Yeah. Um, but if you were working as that accountant for, you know, you talked about the three years. If you're doing it for two years out of the three years and then change your occupation, there's probably a little bit more um, a, a, more of an understanding there that, you know, that, that change in occupation. But, but that speaks, and it all goes back to speaking to the discretion and the claims philosophy at the life office. Mm, agree. Yeah. Wow. So wild. And these are the things that you just have to be aware of, people. Uh, you've got to review your clients. I've got a, one of my best friends. He was a client of mine as a builder. You know, we insured him at the time, 85 grand income, got the pay increase, 120, 130K. I kept telling him, come in, I need to increase your cover, need to increase your cover. Guess what? Right now he's on claim for a disc replacement and he wishes that he- He'd increase the cover. Increased his cover. Mm. And that's the problem we see at claim time as well. And it's heartbreaking for the family. Yeah, because, you know, even when you're asking people to go down to 75% of their pre-disability income, it's a significant drop. But when you're asking them to go down to 50 or or even less than that. 40, yeah. um, That's when, you know, it puts a lot of pressure on the family situation. And that's why I say to advisors, the one thing I would say to them is keep close to your customers, um, you know, review their insurance needs, make sure that they're appropriate because you don't want to encounter these problems at the time of claim. Even our, our accountant that became a minor, you need to make sure that you're on top of that stuff because, you know, theoretically, I mean, theoretically, that's what, what could happen. But theoretically, an insurer might say, no, we're accepting it as an accountant. And that's it. So, and Sharif, just to extend that conversation, because I think it's a it's something that will come up a lot at the moment in the environment that we're in. Let's say that you've either got a client who's maybe on maternity or paternity leave, or they're maybe having a, a career break because what their career is sort of very very different now, or they're unemployed. Let's say that particular person has has an issue. They have a car crash. They have some sort of um, cancer issue happen under an income protection contract, they've still like, what should the advisor be saying to that particular client who's in that scenario? Like, is their cover still that safety net for them? Yeah. Now, if they're on extended leave, it's it's a really interesting one because, and I, I, I always say this, you need to look at the policy terms and conditions. So, you'll, yeah, this you'll is probably, very general. You'll probably yeah. get sick of hearing that. But generally speaking, there's a couple of problems that you encounter. I mean, first of all, if your income zero, then what are you insuring? 
uh, while you're on those career breaks. And also, maternity leave is a little bit different because you can potentially refer that back to the occupation that you were doing prior to you commencing the maternity leave, but it, it's, it's, it's duration dependent. Um, so you need to look at things at what income am I earning? How long have I been out of work? Um, and what do the policy terms and conditions say? Because that's how they will respond. Because I get that question from advisors a lot in terms of, is my person still covered? Um, and generally speaking, it is like TPD is a classic example where it will say, what's it's your primary occupation. With IP, the longer you're out of the workforce, the more your income is going to be zero. So what are you insuring? So you, you question what is the value of even having that ongoing income protection cover. Question on this non-disclosure thing. Uh, for the new entrants to the industry, you, you you might come across this, and I'm certain you will, uh, this idea that the claims team will blind underwrite a an issue to work out whether cover would have been issued in the first place. So from a practical term, uh, you get a claim that's submitted. Oh, they're claiming on their, you know, their left hip because, you know, whatever reason they've fractured it, but they'd had issues before. The claims team has to know whether the policies would have been valid anyway. So how does it practically work? Do you hand it over back to underwriting? Yeah, we do. And then did they go, we're going to rescind the policy or just knock it on the head or just decline the claim? No, so we're going to... So what would happen in that scenario is if we had evidence um, that there was non-disclosure, the only thing that's relevant is only evidence up to the time of application. Yes. in, In the main. So... If at the time of application they were under investigation for something, as, as an example, like say they're... Gallbladder. Yeah, cancer, potentially. Sure. Potentially. Um, and they were getting blood tests and they were getting screens and um, and ultrasounds, etc. And this wasn't disclosed to us. What we would do is we would refer that, this is what we call a, in, mo, in the main re- retrospective underwriting opinion. So we would send that back to our underwriting area and ask them to say, well, had you known this, what would we have done? And the reason I, I, call, I call it blind underwriting because you want the client to know that they're not underwriting this because there's a claim in no, review. exactly. But, but, and that legitimately happens, do you believe? Yes, yes. So, well, in most in most circumstances, the claim is what drives sure the issue, right? Um, but effectively, what we are seeing is, you know, there's been a claim, there's been something that's come up. We send that to the underwriter and say, had you known, what would we have done? Now, that might have been we, we would have exploited, uh, applied an exclusion, we wouldn't have offered covered. We would have waited until we got the results of the tests um, of the examination. And that's where you got remedies under the Insurance Contracts Act. Um, because if it would have been you would have declined or you would have applied an exclusion, um, but you would have offered, say, other types of cover, you've got some options under the Insurance Contracts Act to actually put the contract back into the state it should have been had the disclosures occurred. So that's actually been a really good step forward for, I think, um, 
the insurance industry since about, I think it was 2014, when those changes came in. So, because what the way it was before is, if you wouldn't have entered into the same contract, effectively, you could avoid the whole thing. Whereas now, if you would have entered into the contract, but with variations, you can still offer a contract. Yeah, because I, I had a, uh, a claim declined five years after it was written uh, for mental health non-disclosure and the insurer refunded the five years worth of premium mm. and said, see you later. And on this topic of um, disclosure, what impact do you think teleunderwriting has? Like when it when you outsource the data collection to the insurer, does that have a pot? Like what's your opinion on that, Sharif? Look, I think... I think we need to be very careful with tele-underwriting because I think in the main, the questions are a lot of yes, no. Um, And sometimes, you know, we just need to be careful. What what we as um, claims people do is we actually have to, in the main, listen to some of those calls that, that have actually happened to see what has been disclosed. So... While in the main a lot of the teleunderwriting is yes-no answers, we generally need to go back to the source of truth in terms of what was said in that in that telephone conversation. So um, I'm probably not answering your question, but I think the the reality is that it is here to stay, teleunderwriting. I think it's important that um, you do – and I think the disclosure rates are definitely better on – tele-underwriting, which is good. But I think from a claims perspective, whenever you're having those questions around disclosure and non-disclosure in particular, we tend to prefer to go back to the actual call itself and be able to listen to that just to understand what was being said. Because it's interesting. I mean, I've certainly been in a lot of offices and, and seen a lot of advisors work and they know you know, they know their clients so well that they often can draw out things that might not come to mind for that client around the knee x-ray or the the twinge in the back. So it can kind of, you are excluding that person also that knows that intimate information around, say, a long-term client. So I guess, yeah, to, to a point it works both ways where you might get actually less information when it's a stranger on the phone to another stranger, although but, many, yeah, yeah, can uh, this is interesting, very interesting with the tele underwriting. So there's kind of two schools of thought. Mm. I'm the advisor. I don't want any liability for what's said. Not my problem. Or the other side, I want to build a relationship with my client, or perhaps I want to disclose without disclosing. And that's where the problem lies, right? Yes. Disclosing without disclosing. Yes. So. In the main, I think tele-underwriting works better because at least we've got a recording of what's actually been said um, and we can always go back and check that. The problem you've got is disclosing when not disclosing, um, where an advisor takes some creative... um, Had a headache for three days, no big deal. Yeah, well, they take a creative license and go, (laughs) well, I'm not going to put that in because I don't think that's important. Um, And then... It comes out through the claims process that that particular thing that they failed to let us know was actually a significant piece of information that we needed to know. Um, And that's where I talk about disclosure being vital um, because you don't want any of those problems at claims time. Do you know, 
what I do personally and it pisses off every underwriter that's ever dealt with me, one, because of the person who I am, but two, because what I do. That surprises me, Glenn. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I print my Medicare record from my gov. There you go. You got it all. Like, and that's a pain in the ass. And it could potentially cause a case not to go up because of whatever reason. But from my own personal view on my own personal underwriting, I want to seal all those water leaks in the tub. And part of that is giving my Medicare history to the underwriter. Yeah, look, I think that's a good thing. To be honest, I think it's, um, you know, if we've got the evidence, then it's up to us to do something with it. Yeah. Um, in saying that, we, we may not need it in all cases. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, but where it's relevant, it, it's good to know. But um, in some cases, it, it's Because not so from relevant. a claims point of view, it's this almost garbage in, garbage out. You can only work with what you're working with. And you've had to make some hard calls where families are hanging their hat on money that you actually can't pay because black and white, you did not categorically tell us that you had this issue. And it's it's not the claims person's pro- decline to make. It's the, it's the underwriting. Create, it doesn't create that, that good experience. Yeah. Changing tact for a little bit and changing benefits – um, there's something I would love your insight on, Sharif, around TPD. There's this myth out there that the majority of claims get paid under or would be paid under an any occupation TPD definition. So own occupation isn't really probably worth the extra premium that you pay for it. What are your, you know, what's your experience? Is it 20, how many years? Put, put, <laughs> He won't admit let's, to the amount let, of years, but what's your, what's your experience around that? Do, do 90, I think the stat was something like over 98% of claims will get paid under an any, so why would you pay the extra premium for own? I used to hear 80%. Okay, so maybe I just amped anyway, it up I a bit. Yeah. A high portion. High portion. Yeah, look, I, I provide the, this is Sharif's view of the world mm, on, on these questions rather than any statistical data that you may have. I think it's occupation dependent, um, mm. whether own occupation and any occupation would make a difference. Like I think if you've got a plumber who's 20 years doing plumbing duties, heavy plumbing duties, whether you've got an own occupation or an any occupation policy, it really does not matter. Um, See, that's so- interesting because I would think that it's, you know, without that opinion of yours, I my default would be, well, if the – occupation is more manual, then you need that own occupation to really protect that because then they could go and do something more white collar. But what you're saying is actually in contrast to that, it's really the duration of perhaps that occupation. I think you've also got to look at reasonableness. Um, Like if someone's been a plumber for 20 odd years, are you really going to ask him to go work in an office for, for 40 hours mm. a week doing and two Yeah, and, and this is like I just keep crapping on about you've got to find out the philosophy of the insurer. It's a really good point. Where yeah. they just black and white, nut, piss off or but I also think you've you want got to look a, after our clients. Yeah, but I also think you've got to understand what it is the occupation of the life insured is because he's, he's on the tools but we're putting him down as a manager. Now, that in itself is a 
is is a disclosure issue because he that that's not the occupation he was he was in okay um so you really need to be careful in terms of understanding what it is the occupation of that individual is um, and when we talk about TPD so in the, particular... the best practice tip is really draw the tasks out of the... Exactly. Out yeah. of the and, occupation and rather than the title. And don't freak and lie to get a cheaper premium. Agree. Agree. <laughs> I because said it. There you go. It. Yeah. That's to put it bluntly. Yeah. 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 Um, but look, TPD, I think own occupation probably makes a lot more sense on more of the white collar professional occupations. Um to me, and again, I always provide this, and I've said this at the outset, this is Sharif's view of the world, I don't know whether it makes much of a difference on some of the heavy blue-collar occupations. I, I, I don't know why we need to differentiate well, those because a lawyer would have a field day anyway because of the definition, any occupation that you're reasonably trained or suited for. Mm. I'm not reasonably trained and suited uh, for a bookkeeper's job if I'm a plumber for 15 years. But they're the, that's the key, right? Reasonably trained and suited for, mm. okay? That's the key. Mm. So you're asking a, our plumber. Subjective. We call him Joe the plumber to go and work at Zurich assessing claims for, for 40 hours a week. He knows nothing mm. about working in an office, um, understanding all the Microsoft um, platforms, etc. Is that really reasonable? Mm, mm. Um, however, if Joe was a manager in his business and he was doing all the books and he, that, that was probably 40 hours, or, you know, he was doing that 40, 50% of the time and he had contractors out there working, um, doing the heavy lifting and he was just supervising, then that's where the own occupation um, would probably be a little bit more beneficial for him rather than the ENIOC. I want to bring this home, if it's all right with you, Danny, with probably – I've got two questions. Number one is the head of claims. At some point, there have been claims that have landed on your desk to make a call on. Do insurers do uh, benefit of the doubt based on what we've received? It's a bit curly, but on balance, we're going to pay the claim. Look, um, I think I said this at the outset, insurers in the main pay claims. Yeah. So I think you'll see that there are, in every organisation, there are some of those curly claims where, you know, it's marginal, um, but we might give the benefit of the doubt. Um, but, and you know, we, we, there are even claims when, you know, we've and we we report these to the regulator as well. That that are what's called ex gratia, so they may not technically fit the box, um, but we've still gone out and, and and made a business decision around around that. So, in the main, um, yes, there are the curly ones that do get the benefit of the doubt, but there are also the curly ones that that you can't go. Well, no, I think we've, yeah, if we pay this, we've got to pay everyone. Exactly. Yeah. 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 As head of claims, one of the leading insurers in Australia, with all this APRA stuff that's come in, do you feel there was much consultation to either industry, one, or two, even to you personally? Um, look, I think there was definitely consultation with the industry. But look, I think in the main, 
the decisions around sustainability of income protection make a lot of sense. Mm. Um, I think we've been saying for a long time where the, the, the policies are very rich in benefits, uh, which is why there's – it's a reason why so many claims are being paid, right? Billions of dollars are walking 3. out the door. 3.5 billion, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, but I think it's – it's back to the future in a lot of sense because what they're really doing is stripping the policy right back um, to probably what it was in in the 90s. Um, and it's got a real um, basic feel to it now, which is, you know, your income is 12 months prior to your date of disablement, which is great because, we, you know, you look at the policies now, there are issues with replacement ratios. When you look at agreed value and endorsed agreed value contracts, you get real discrepancies in, ter- in terms of, um, you know, what, what their actual income was. And in, you know, a certain percentage of claims, people are actually better off on claim than what they are back at work because their pre-disability income is either the same or better. And you've probably got people on your books that you can't get off claim. Yeah, absolutely, because the the income that they're getting on claim is actually better than what it was in the last yeah. 12 months. And the policy is too good anyway. Yeah. I, I think that's my only problem. I think the 12 months prior, that's that doesn't sit right with me. I would have liked to see 18 months. Like, sure, do a five-year term, whatever, knock yourself out. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, you've got people who are on leave. Um, yeah. You know, what happens in, in that scenario? Self-employed people, um, you, in, in the main, you could be dealing with a lot of draft P&Ls rather than mm. actual solid P&Ls. So, there are definitely, um, you know, challenges with the 12 months. And I think it works really well. And I think where they drew on it was probably the superannuation environment where, you know, in the main, a lot of people are employees. So you can really get that close correlation in terms of what their pre-disability income was Mm. because they're employed. But self-employed, it becomes a bit more difficult Mm. um, for, like I said, a lot of their financials are being draft. You know, what if people take leave? How does that work? Um, And I just think like... Pre all this change, the agreed and the endorsed agreed, it was rubbish. Agreed, all should be endorsed agreed. Agree. Like I would, but that's a really like good any point. policy I recommend that I'd do agreed, mm. I'd endorse it because it's not worth it. Yeah, um, and this is actually you talk about what an advisor should know. We'll touch on this because I think there's a difference between agreed value and endorsed agreed value. So, with endorsed agreed value, all the financials are provided at the time of underwriting. That's all said and done. Agreed value contracts, and there's still many out there, and while APRA might be, um, you know, well, while we have shut the door on it, agreed value contracts are not endorsed agreed value contracts. So, they still need to provide financials. Particularly on a partial claim. Particularly on a partial, even on a total. Um because Unless they're a bloody school teacher who's obviously been a school teacher the last twenty years, yeah. you'd probably let that slide. But but agreed value, yeah. Geez. But agreed value contracts are there. Like the only benefit of an agreed value contract is you can lock in a monthly benefit. Great, but they still need to provide financials at claim time to support that benefit. Effectively, we need to actually still see those financials. You, you've you've selected an agreed value contract, yes, but what you need to do is provide us those financials to. Pro- to prove to us that at the time of application, they could have supported that monthly benefit. And for the new entrance into the world, not that you can really do agreed anymore, but... But they will still have a... If they've got a book of business, 
Totally. You need to understand they this. They need to understand this. And I would say as a general rule of thumb, when you're seeing this new customer, new clients, just get some evidence on file that- They were earning that when you they- You were earning that. Just because I know you want the drama in underwriting, not at claims. I so agree. So, this, this new entrance got a very, very long list of best practice things to, to be aware of. What? It, so, let's just recap on the top kind of- Five things that they need to make sure that their claims process has. Best shot of happening ASAP <laughs> and smoothly. So they need to make sure there's no disclosure that's occurred, so, non-disclosure yep. that's occurred. They need to be under the care of a medical practitioner. So go to the doctor straight away. Yep. Make sure that the disclosure is accurate. They need to tell the insurer straight away. Tell the insurer straight away. Yep. They need to make sure their financials are provided. To be able to support the benefit, claims. particularly for IP claims. And um, the fifth thing is um, appreciate that the insurer in the main pays claims. Yeah. Um, we have to go through a process um, and it may not suit everyone that, um, you know, we have to go through this process, but we do. But... We are trying to make decisions on these claims as quickly as possible. And I think that's the one thing that I do want to reiterate to advisors. You know, particularly claims that are under assessment, we have obligations on us under the Life Insurance Code of Practice to keep yourself and the customer informed because we will actually reach out to you if there's anything that we've got to update you. And even if we don't have anything to update you on, we will reach out to you anyway. Um, So I think they're the things that I would like to call out... um, yeah. Sweet. Thank you so much for all of your opinions and the world according to Sharif. And thank you, Glenn. No worries. We're going to get you back right in the next episode to talk about the mind and the spine. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> okay. interesting. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening today. If you are in the advice world and you've made it this far, my question to you is, who can you forward this episode to? Thank you so much for listening. This was made possible because of My Risk Advisor. You can head over to the Facebook group, My Risk Advisor, and join in on the conversation. 